Welcome back to Pro Running News. Matt Fox and David Lippman speaking all about should well actually we're going to answer the question should you pull out of your next marathon and ultimately what we're talking about is how costly is missing time in a marathon build up. So David you found an interesting study and we've obviously spoke about this off air a few times when we've been on runs about you know what happens if you miss a few days or a week or two weeks in a marathon build up and um, yeah, let's let's get talking about the study that you came across. Yeah, so it was released on the tenth uh, of January this year, uh, and obviously these sort of things come across my my timeline, my uh, social media timelines, or, or my desk for other reasons. And and it's just a really interesting study. They looked at you know they used we, we discussed Strava recently in an episode a couple episodes back, and I talked at the time about how it can be used for research and why that might be a positive thing, and why I was. Um, Happy Strava allowed that. And this was indeed one of those studies. So they took data from Strava. They found 292,000 runners who'd completed 509,979 marathons between 2014 and 2017. So it's a lot of data. And that's the sort of stuff that you use to try and get these answers because different people have different effects, right? Um, And there's benefits to that. And there's also costs to that. We can talk a little bit about that. But what they looked at is... um, people who miss time to training, so-called training disruptions. And they look for complete cessation of training. So no training at all for a period. And they looked at, of course, some people have this Some people run three times a week. So to say, oh, you missed a day of running, like that's not really reasonable. So what they looked at was um, disruptions that were sort of prolonged there. And they looked at the difference of missing more than seven days uh, of training and having one marathon where they missed at least seven days and one marathon where they didn't miss any time. Uh, and... They took the window, I believe it was 16 weeks. So the 16 weeks prior to a marathon was where they looked for a missing period of training. And interestingly, they found that over 50% of runners experienced short training disruptions. So up to and including six days, but longer were found, you know, less frequently, which makes sense. Most people miss a day or two here or there. Um, and then the results of the study were that they found that more experienced uh more experienced longer tra- the runners who experience longer training disruptions suffer uh, a finish time cost of five to eight percent compared to the same runners experience only short disruptions which is less than seven days so that's saying if you miss more than seven days you're probably going to have five to eight percent worse performance than if you miss less than seven days and then longer training disruptions led to greater finish time costs for males and females so males uh, dealt uh, were more affected by this than women were and faster runners experience a greater time cost than slower runners. And this might be because they miss the same amount uh, of minutes. For instance, it might slow you down five minutes, but that's a bigger percentage for the men. Uh, so for the faster runners, uh, and then when disruptions occurred later in training, so closer to race day, they were associated with a greater time cost, 5.2% rather than the small disruptions. If it was earlier in the training block, just 4.4%. The earlier weeks in the training blocks were weeks eight to 12 away from race day, whereas later weeks were weeks three to seven from race day. And just for some context here, we're talking about, you know, the the total thing here that talking about the, the rough cost is somewhere between five and 8% and 5%. Uh, is 12 minutes for a four-hour marathoner, nine minutes for a three-hour marathoner, and seven and a half minutes for a two-hour 30 marathoner. So that's 5%. That's what a lot of these are talking about is you're missing about that much time. Uh, or That's the cost. And then 8% would be 19 minutes for a four-hour marathoner, 14 minutes for a three-hour marathoner, and 12 minutes for a two-hour 30 marathoner. So I think, um, yeah, this probably aligns with some of what we're thinking, but there's a, there's a bit of nuance in the study that we can tease out as to why it may not be so relevant. So remembering that 
there are individual differences here that are going to impact things differently. Uh, and to assume that you're going to have the same performance in two marathons is probably naive as well, right? So mm-hmm. if you, you may get faster, you may get slower for any number of reasons. The course may be different. It may be harder. And these are all things that weren't accounted for. And that's part of the reason they use such a big data set, but it's also one of the challenges in these sort of data sets, right? So if I run a PR here, uh, in London, and then I go to run Boston and I run slower, like no one's too surprised, but you could say that's to do with injury or something like that. So there's, there's a couple of weaknesses here, but it's an interesting thought and it stemmed an interesting conversation between us, which is like, how to, you know, how can you mitigate these risks? What are the risks? You know, how, what are the effects and, and who do they affect more? So I think that's yeah. where we should start here. Yeah. It's, it's a very interesting study that if you look at it at face value, you would take the standpoint of, okay, if you miss more than a week, you're in real trouble. Whereas if you dig deep into it, and actually I would even argue that most people listening to this podcast are probably more experienced runners that have been running for a long time. And that's something that is not factored into this really at all. The duration of time the athlete has been running in their whole life. And I actually think that plays a big role. So what I oh, mean yeah. by that is, is let's take let's take me for example I, I don't i'm not clear exactly how many years you've been running high volume i know when you started running but at least for me i'd like to hear your your, your uh your history in a minute in terms of how long you've been running for um i would say an average of more than 70 more than 80 kilometers a week or 50 miles a week but i've been doing that for around about 15 years of the last 18 years i took a few years off in the, in the middle there where i i went to work full time and i put on some kilos um but I I know for sure that in a marathon buildup for me, if I did a 16 week buildup where I did sort of six to seven weeks of uh, of, of um, progressive training to, to then do a 10 week marathon block, if I had to take seven days off during that block, I do not think I would be affected by 5%. I think I'd be affected by maybe one or two. Um, and that's, I think, in the most part because of the lifetime mileage and the aerobic capacity built up over 15 years of running. Um, there's really no way of fully knowing this, uh, but I do know many other examples of people. Uh, I think one good example that comes to mind here that that I often tell the story about is, is Chris Thompson, right, from the UK that won the British trials, Tomo? I, I believe uh, I'm not Chris. Sure, but yeah. yeah, well, at least his, at least if I've got his first name wrong, it's Tomo is his, is his nickname and Thompson is his surname. He had... Um, he had nine days, I believe it was, or 10 days off. He shared in a podcast uh, in a lead up to the trials where he won in a personal best of, of 210, uh, I think it was 52, the trials for the Olympics. Uh, and and he he hurt his hand or his finger in an accident when he was sort of doing some sort of construction and had to, had to take, I think it was a little bit over a week off. And I mean, he ran a massive PB and won the trials. And I think that time off was, yeah, I, I probably should have had these exact details ready to go, but I believe it was about six or seven weeks to go. It might have even been six weeks to go. And yes, I'm pulling one example out that's a very high level athlete that has been running for, you know, I think he's a little older than me or around about my age, mid thirties. He's been running very seriously for a very long time, but he's another example of someone just like just like me or someone that's been running for a long time that's done quite a few buildups that if they take, if they're forced to take seven days off <laughs> of whatever it is they choose to take seven days off, um, I really don't think they're going to be affected by seven minutes. Um, I would guess for me that if I had to have seven days off due to an illness or an injury around six weeks to go for a marathon, I don't know if I'd really change my goal at that point. I think if it got more than 10 days and it got up two weeks, I think then that might be a little bit of a different story. But this study has not factored in that at all, the lifetime mileage of the runner. Um, and I think that people that are relatively new to running and maybe it's their first or second or third marathon, I can see why these statistics line up. 
for sure. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything else I that think, you think is I'm missing with that, or that's probably the main thing? No, I think. Look, I think I've said this to a number of people a number of times, and and any of my friends who are listening will laugh because I would have heard this. Which is, we tend to over-index and over-emphasize the days and weeks of training, and yes. under-emphasize uh, the month, the like the long weeks, months, and years of training. So you know, someone will go, "Oh, you know, this build-up's cooked because I, you know, I was out for five days." It's like, mate, you've run, you've literally not missed a day in five years. I think you'd be fine, <laughs> right? So. So I think that's something that we're bad at with runners. We tend to like really want to be performing at all times really well at the moment and and not sort of look back and and understand that. I think something else we touched on and you shared a story on our overtraining podcast um, about your training. I think one of the things we're really good at as distance runners is running a lot. And one of the things we're not so good at is resting. And I think sometimes injury just provides that opportunity uh, either of rest or of changed stimulus, right? So you might go, hey, I can't run, but I can cross train, right? Get on the cross trainer and do that. And someone goes, oh, the cross training is now magic for for me. I know Jess Denson did a bunch of cross training in um, as a result of some bone stress injuries and prepped really well for a marathon. And people go, oh, well, I've got a cross train because she cross trained and it was really good for her. And the question is like, is it better than any aerobic volume? Hard to know. It does deload the bones a bit. Okay, I understand that. That might be why you choose it also. It's a slightly different stimulus. And as somebody who, you know, one of the goals of running is gaining efficiency, which means that it's less, each run, each step you take is less stimulating. So to do something you're a little bit less efficient at, no doubt provides a big stimulus, right? If you take it, if you take it back to physiology and bare bones, you get really efficient at running. So maybe after some time, the running itself isn't very like, stimulating in terms of adaptation. So going to cross training, doing some cycling, these things that people do, and then all of a sudden becomes magic. Maybe that's why is it's just a super different aerobic stimulus for you. And then they start to think it's magic and they sort of drink their Kool-Aid and, and maybe there is something to it, but, but also it might just be different, right? And maybe a week off is just freshening up. It's not a real problem. And maybe it gets rid of some niggles. Maybe it gives you a bit of a different mental approach. There's all sorts of things. I love to talk about tapering because tapering is such an art, not a science. And I had a boss and I won't name him, but he'd run for Bill Dellinger at uh, Oregon post um, Bill Bowerman. And he, at one point, um, ran American trials and, and ran really well. And he said to me, I said to him one day, like, oh, I, I'm trying to work on my taper. What do you think? What do you do for your taper? And he said, oh, let's not talk about my taper because my taper is uh, based off something that happened to me and it was really weird. And I said, well, now you've got to tell me what that is. <laughs> yeah. And basically he got really unwell a month out of a race, had a week off and then decided I can't miss any time. I just going to go back to training as hard as possible and trained as hard as he could up until race day and then raced his best race. And that became his taper was one week, complete rest, four weeks out from a marathon and that's his taper it was then to just get back into things. And that really spoke to me in that sometimes, you know, tapering itself, but also this sort of thing that we're talking about, it's just about freshening up. Maybe you can miss a week and it's not a problem because it just freshens you up a little bit. So I think you're right. But again, I think the other thing in this is the experience is so important because I think the bandwidth of possible finish times is so different in beginners and advanced Right. Oh, yeah. So in you, I could ask you to go run a marathon tomorrow and your finish time is much closer as a percentage and as a number of minutes to your best time ever than a beginner, because a beginner really needs to prep into that. You probably need to prep into it if you want to run a PB, but if you want to run close to your PB within five or 10 minutes, you probably don't need that much work. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree entirely. That's that, And that's something that's if you like I said at the start, if you read this study at, at face value, you, you don't even factor into those. You don't even factor those things in at all. Um, well, they're not factored into the study, is what I was, I'm saying. You know, yeah, yeah, you can't. Yeah, because even if you ask, 
yeah, they'd have to they'd have to basically ask all of these two thousand nine hundred uh, two hundred ninety two thousand three hundred twenty three runners of their lifetime mileage and their years of running. Yeah, um, and, and just... that's not factored in. So yeah, yeah, but yeah, and, I mean, so you... it's important if you're listening to this and and, and you're curious to know what a uh, what a a period of time off would would mean for you. Let's actually maybe let's go through a few hypotheticals that we think would would what what would happen. So let's take Bob that has been running for two. He started running in COVID in at the end of 2020, and he's done he's done two marathons. If he's doing a build up of 16 weeks and he has to take a week off, um, you know what do you think would happen to someone like Bob? It's it's a hard. I mean, I think it would impact him significantly depending on what sort of running he'd done. Uh, because well, maybe I'll tell a story about me, my first marathon, right? So mm. I was training for the Great Ocean Road Marathon, and I was um, going to do the Great Ocean Road Marathon in I think it's twenty fifteen. Yeah, it was going to be my first marathon, and then six weeks later, I was going to run the was it 2014 it doesn't really matter uh, and then six weeks later i was gonna run the gold coast marathon for and i was organizing a group to run it for a friend of mine who'd uh, a friend of ours who died we we're running it in his memory and i had this weird calf pain ended up seeing a sports doctor and he's like mate you got a stress reaction in your tibia you'll be fine you can't run um for three more weeks you can do whatever else you want you can't run though and then you can get back into it and i said oh cool so i can run the great ocean road he said yeah that's fine and i said cool and i can run the gold coast he said no you're gonna choose one so chose the gold coast and the problem with that was it was six weeks away or something like eight weeks away at the time and so i did this period of uh time on the cross trainer and what ended up happening was I didn't do enough volume enough long time on the cross trainer so I actually ran really well on race day for the first 30 kilometers and then blew to pieces I was running 430 per kilometer for 30 kilometers metronomically and then at that point on the Gold Coast for those who've run it where there's that little hill you go up the little hill past the start line it's mentally a bit challenging it's my first marathon it's getting hot and then it went from 430s it went 445 5 515 530 sick like and it just blew right out every kilometer got slower until i got to the turnaround and then it picked it up a little bit and um ended up running a 37 to 321 um and so uh, yeah it was a tough day but i guess that the point i'm making there is i didn't cross train appropriately which is i didn't do the, enough aerobic volume on it i'd you know do an hour a handful of days a week uh, and i was only running five days a week but you know and i wasn't running a lot for them but in me, it was the a marathon block was not about sharpening. It was about building up to the distance. So I had to get to 35Ks, I had to run 35Ks in training. Uh, whereas, you know, you and I were talking before, I'm currently running 35Ks, you know, weeks and weeks out from London at the moment. So mm-hmm. I think that's a really big difference between running age is if you need all of those weeks of training to get it perfect to have run enough. Uh, to feel confident in your long run, then you're in real trouble if you have to miss time off. That's going to have an impact. Maybe it's five minutes, maybe it's more. If if you like you or I now, and you know, I don't want to put you in my category because we're you know, very different, but people who are running a lot who don't think much of running 35, 30 kilometers on a weekend, then it's a very different story because it's like, well, yeah, I missed a week, but I'll be fine to go back to training. I don't have to really ease back into things. It's all good. Hmm. Yeah. No, it's a really interesting hypothetical that you that you brought up. There's so many factors to it as well, like so many factors. It's like, yeah, you you mentioned a little spanner in the works in terms of the middle of the, the middle of the block being told to, yeah, it's 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 really interesting. And people often are sitting there at, midway through a block, thinking, <laughs> I think the the, cra- the craziest thing, and a lot of people will fall into this category, honestly. And people listening might might be might have fallen into this category recently. People sometimes think when they've been training for ten weeks straight. 
and maybe they've averaged you know 70 80 miles a week or 110 to 130k a week they sometimes think if they miss two days they're going to go backwards and that to yeah. me is fascinating <laughs> because it just, just I, I argue that I argue that if they had five days off, they'd go, they'd go nowhere. Maybe even seven days off, they'd probably go nowhere as well. Um, but you know, this study says otherwise. So well, uh, you know, got to think about that. I'd say that if you were running that amount and you missed two to five days, you've tapered. You're not going backwards. You're actually more yeah. ready to perform. Uh, yeah. That's what tapering is. It's rest after accumulated fatigue. Um, I think where some people go wrong is um, the acute, I don't think they understand the acute physiological effects of exercise. So in a very short time frame, your plasma volume can change. And what that means is that your heart rate as at the same work can change. So you hear people say all the time, oh yeah, I've, been, I've had a week or two weeks off now, my heart rate's really high when I'm running. It's a plasma volume issue. The heart's fine. You just don't have as much blood in your system. And therefore, the plasma volume will expand and you'll be fine. And that's not red blood cells. It's not about iron. It's not about oxygen carrying capacity. It's about the total amount of fluid in the system. So the heart for each pump pumps less volume. It pumps less far because there's less pressure in it. So, I mean, that's a very quick change, right? That's as a response to altitude. You'll get that. You'll get it as a response to heat. You'll get it as a response to training. And so, and that's a very quick adapting system. We're talking days. So yes, having a week off may change your heart rate. That doesn't mean you've lost fitness. It means the plasma volume's changed. You'll be fine. And I think there's a lot of people who are looking for confidence and that's the sort of thing that throws them off. They go like, oh, my heart rate's up and I've had time off. Like I'm cooked now, right? Rather than being <laughs> confident in their training. Mm. Yeah, the whole heart rate thing is interesting. I'm, I'm a little anti-heart rate, but at the same time, I know, I know it can be beneficial. I know, I know it can be used in ways that will benefit people, but I have seen quite a few runners lately get very obsessed over heart rate to the point where, I mean, I mean, I listened to a, a podcast the other day of a, a three Australian runners that that uh, that share their weekly training logs, and and, and one guy's run two fourteen for for the marathon, and he he doesn't seem to really fixate on data much at all. In fact, I, I really like his approach to training in general. And he he was sharing a story about how he was on a run and his wrist heart rate watch on his Garmin was showing 184 beats a minute and he was just like jogging up the hill. And then he just realized, well, that's obviously completely wrong. So, you know, this guy's similar age to me. So 183, 184, I don't know which number he, it was 180 something. I think he said 184. And that would be be pretty close to his max. And he said he was, he said he was jogging up, up a hill. So he just, he just switched the heart rate thing off the, uh, off the screen um, because it just, it just made him confused. So, you know, I mean, wrist heart rate doesn't tend to be super accurate. Uh, A couple of people commented on one of my Strava logs the other day saying, why was I running at 5.30 pace and my heart rate was 160? I just said, maybe it's wrong. (laughs) Um, And they, they they found that, they found that an interesting answer because I don't think they think they considered that. But um, yeah, I think that the heart rate thing can really uh, lead you astray in some instances. But then it can also it can also boost your confidence if it works the other way. If yeah, your heart rate super um, low. I think. Look, if if uh, listeners are interested in in data, we're happy to do an episode on it. But you need to be sure the data is correct. Wrist heart rate is notoriously bad for uh, anatomy reasons, technology reasons, and a few other things. The technology itself is good, just probably not applied there. Uh, I use a similar technology and my forearm works fine. Um, but yeah, ha- happy to go into this. So let us know via DM on Instagram if it's something you're interested in. But um, 
Mm. And whether we should do an episode on training with data, because I'm happy to go into it. It's a passion area of mine. But I think at all times with data, you need to make sure it's giving you the right information and that you need to use multiple sources to triangulate. If you're not breathing heavily and your heart rate's really high and you feel like it's a really easy run, the heart rate's probably wrong. If you're murdering yourself up a hill, sweating bullets and can barely talk and your heart rate is low, it's also probably wrong. Um, and then there's, you know, a spectrum between that, right? So, you know, when I was going really well in Berlin, my heart rate was really low. I was feeling really good. My breathing rate was low. I could nasal breathe. Even though I was running a pace that was much quicker than I'd planned, I thought, no, all of those data points are telling me that this pace is sustainable. I feel good. It's It feels easy. My heart rate's low. My breathing's controlled. Like this is an appropriate pace for what I believe to be marathon pace today. And it turned out to be correct, right? And so multiple data streams need to give you your insight, not just one. Hmm. Yeah, I learned a lot from you actually over the last few months about data. Um, I, I've been through many different phases of thought about data. So, you know, I've been through phases of thinking it's uh, it's very important and you need to analyze all these things. And then I went pretty much completely away from it and thought, I don't want to analyze anything. And and if anything, you sort of taught me to maybe just look at it and observe it and understand it and use it, but just don't don't get obsessive or don't get emotional about it. And I think that's the right place to be. And ultimately, that's where that's where Gustav Eden and Christian Blumenfeld seem to be when you hear interviews from them. I mean, and their coach, they seem to, so these guys are, sorry, they're triathletes. They're, they're two of the best triathletes in the world, um, both from Norway, uh, first and third at uh, Kona last year. Um, these guys use a lot of da data uh, in their training. In fact, probably more, almost more than any runner would, but they don't really overanalyze it or really, really action over the top. They basically just observe it and they make, I mean, you, you know more about this than I do, but from what I understand, they, they 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 obviously observe the data they do lots of testing but they still run a lot to feel and a lot to a lot just basically to the to, to their effort yeah i think there's this concept of like the norwegian because they're norwegian right and so is Jakob britson and everyone's sort of talking about the norwegian methods and using lactate testing and all that i think the question is always going to be why and what are you going to do with the data and what are you testing it for so like i can pull out a lactate meter we can go to richmond park you and i can run around and take some lactates and, and be done right so and then what um, and I think the important thing here, and it goes back to Strava as well. It goes back to tracking mileage. It goes back to all of this, which is like, understand what the goal is, understand what you're trying to do. And then how are you going to measure success in the interim? Right? So the goal is to not finish a 1500 meter race and have a low lactate. That's useless. The goal is to win it. Right? Like no one stands on the start line and says, listen, let's run as hard as we can, but keep our lactate low. Like that's not what happens. These are all surrogate measures to understand physiology and go from there. So the way they use their data, and, and I really like this approach, and it's something I'm trying to mirror, which is like, let's look at what we'd expect from this data given these outputs, because the goal is to ultimately run a pace. So if my goal is uh, a marathon in X time, that means I have to break it down, work backwards from there, running these paces on these days, and that should be equivalent to whatever. The problem with that is you then want to race your sessions. And so the, the reason you use data is to make sure you're not doing that. So if I go to, you know, if I go to do a marathon session and my goal is to run, you know, four minute kilometers, uh, at marathon effort and I think it's marathon effort and my heart rate's 180 I know it's not right or something else is wrong I'm sick or it's I'm dehydrated or whatever but if I go there and I run four minutes a kilometer and my heart rate's 120 and again assuming both of those heart rates are correct then it's like well actually maybe I can run faster than four minute kilometers uh, again if that's happening week in week out right so I think data is about giving you feedback on trying to dial in everything else. So, you know, there's this great saying that many people have used is sort of train with data so that you can race on feel. And I think that's kind of where 
I try to get to, and I think that's where you're getting towards is like, let's just race this race and you know, ignore what's happened before and be confident. I don't think, you know, one of the things I found interesting about in my readings about Kenya is that there's nobody who lacks confidence in Kenya. Like they just kind of, they, they go out, it's too hard and they're happy to go on along and then pop and then just keep trying. Uh, and the same could oh, be yeah. said to some extent of Japanese running where the guys will go out and run these ridiculous half marathon splits and then pop terribly <laughs> in the marathon. And so, so I think probably the thing we struggle with most in, in, I guess, Western culture of running, if you want to call it that is this over analysis, uh, analysis of data to try and make ourselves feel confident or give ourselves an insight, like dial into your feelings so that you can really understand what you should be doing effort wise that's the goal. And then the time will be what it is. Don't be stressing about it because it's not going to help you. Mm. Yeah. Well, the three leading nations, I would argue, in terms of depth in the half marathon and marathon, uh, Kenya, Ethiopia, and Japan, if you look at maybe the, the the time of the 50th fastest runner or the 100th fastest runner, they, they would be the three leading nations. And uh, yeah, all three don't, don't, really, don't really do this. Uh, I mean, they all run to win, basically. Those three nations, they run to win. They also race. So, so Kenya a little bit different actually because Kenya and Japan run to run to win. They run to win prize money. Japanese also run to win, but they also have most of their running is revolved around Eckerd and the relay. So they're still running to win, but just in a different fashion in a relay in a relay leg. So, you know, these guys don't really. I mean, time is not that important to them a lot of the time. It's actually just yeah. winning, and so as a result of that, they they run to feel and they when they start a race. When they, they they don't have a look at their heart rate in the middle of, in the middle of the race and think oh that's too high, they're looking at the people around them going how can I win this thing, and that's a very different it's a very different psychology uh, to to looking at your paces and your data and wondering can I sustain this and can I not, um, and yeah someone could be listening to me saying this and saying well that's stupid because what if you just go out in the marathon at your 10k pace and try and win it and then all of a sudden you pop at 12k you know, I obviously know that that's, that's a risk as well, but over time, I think you realize that when you start a marathon, you know, you know what your 10 K pace is and, and, and you know what your marathon pace is. And, and, and what I often tell people that I, that I coach anyway, is that when you start a 10 K race, why don't you just think to yourself, okay, well, this is going to take me about 35 minutes. If that's roughly what your, what your standard is. And why don't you think to yourself when you hit, when you start and you start running, you think to yourself, can I sustain this current pace for 35 minutes? And then you'll get in probably into the right pace. So yeah, I it's, think it's pretty it's a pretty easy way to think about it. I think you've got to dial in your effort, right? And I think that's what you're saying, which yeah. is you need to get your effort right. The, you, no one's advocating 10K PBs in a marathon. I think people are advocating yeah. running at a pace that feels right and you need to work on what that is and ignoring the pace. So if you're faster, you're faster. If you're slower, you're slower. And then if you kick home, you kick home. Like that's the goal. It's not to... It's not to run a certain pace and miss this. And, you know, we had an episode on GPS accuracy and that, and there's mm -hmm. a whole bunch of questions around that. So I'd go back and listen to that if you're worried about, uh, you know, paces on your watch or you're, you're married to those. So I'd be really hesitant. Mm -hmm. I think probably to wrap up, what we should talk about is maybe some advice for people if they're going to have, if they've had time off and what dictates things. So I'd say if you're more experienced, uh, then, you know, you can probably tolerate some time off more. Uh, if you've been training for a longer duration that is if you've had a good six months of build and then you have to miss 10 days it's probably different to if you've had a couple of weeks and then you have to miss 10 days um i would say that uh you know what's preventing you running right so if you've got a you know stress fracture that's very different to hey i've got a um, small tendon issue or i broke my hand for instance 
And then I would be doing, you know, if you're worried about it, do as much cross training as you can. And sometimes you might be able to do more, right? If you go from running all of your kilometers or all of your training is running, and then you go into some cycling or cross training, you may actually be able to do more volume. And yes, it's not as specific, but that's a pretty big stimulus. And I think you might surprise yourself with what you can do off that. And that all circles back to then, how do you know what to run on the day, which is the reason people hate missing training time. And the answer is you should dial in your feeling, right? Like that's exactly the conversation we've just had, which is you need to be dialing in your feeling so that you know what race pace should feel like for that race, be it a 5K or a 10K or a marathon. Uh, you need to really dial that in and uh, and then have all of the stimulus that's been there for you already. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I actually learned, I've had a few, few times when I've been put out of action for five to six weeks and then had to run a marathon shortly after or I decided to run a marathon shortly after. And actually one one story I don't think I've told too much that is is exactly what you're talking about here is a few years ago, I entered Berlin Marathon and then uh, Tom had a plantar fasciitis very badly, had a small tear, Um had a cortisone injection, recovered in about three weeks, four weeks. The tear was super minor. So I recovered in about four weeks. And then I had six weeks till Berlin Marathon. And in those four weeks, I was doing a lot of, I, I came across a gym that had a stair walker. And so I was okay. just doing a lot of stair walking. And, and, and I think that was one of the best cross training exercises that I've ever come across. It was very, very boring, but I was doing 90 minute stair walks. But what happened after that, I trained for six weeks, but what I didn't do is I wasn't able to, um, I, I ended up finishing the marathon 235, which was a PB, but I had really bad cramping at the end. I feel like I got my aerobic capacity and my VO2 max high enough to run 229, but um, my muscles fell apart. And that was because I don't think I did, I, I wasn't able to, I didn't have enough time to build up to doing a few really solid long runs that would have got my muscles ready for the race. Yeah. So that, really was, that was the problem. Yeah. Yeah, it's a spot on. And I, like, I know some pro Ironman athletes who use a lot of like uh, weighted stair climbs. I've used a lot of it, but that was for trail running. But like I used to do half hour, 45 minutes on the Stairmaster at threshold heart rate. And it was just brutal. You'd yeah, be pouring brutal. sweat. And it's, you know, again, what's the goal? Like that's an aer anaerobic stimulus. Like, so, you, you, you know, that's the tool. And it's not a specific, right? As you said, the muscles are not going to be trained for that, uh, especially and the need of all attendance probably. But you can do a lot with minimal it's just that runners generally when they get don't get to run they get become so, uh, like a bit sooky and decide oh we're not going to do anything then and it's like okay that's fine but then you're not going to perform either <laughs> so <laughs> you kind of got to own it a little bit mm, yeah so should you pull out of your next marathon i guess uh the question doesn't have an answer but uh ultimately yeah there's lots of things to to digest in that last 30 minutes uh, to think about but Normally, I think having seven days off for most people, at least listening to this podcast, that are probably pretty serious runners, I think you'll be totally fine. Um, it's, assuming it's assuming maybe it, oh, I mean, you even gave the example of your your colleague that had seemingly had quite a bit of time off just before the race and ran a PB, so maybe that doesn't even matter. Yeah, I think it depends what yeah. you can do in that week and why you're having time off and and what yeah. it's looked like previously. But but I'd, I'd say own it and and do the work and I think uh, dial in the race feel and and be okay with not knowing what your result may be and just be okay yeah. to race it and see how you go and enjoy it. And maybe that's the genesis of a PB and maybe it's genesis of learning, but yeah. uh, hopefully you enjoyed that episode, everybody, please. If you're enjoying what we do, share what we share it with a friend, uh, you know, send us questions that you have uh, to DMS on Instagram and rate us like the podcast, follow us on social media and the podcast and really appreciate it and take care. Talk soon. Thanks guys. Thanks for listening.